0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. You're listening to The Views Room from Reuters Breaking Views with me, Anthony Curry. Later in the program, our colleagues in Asia will lay out what investors can expect from Indonesian President Jokowi's second term in office, and would will explain why Twitter's boss, Jack Dorsey, should spend more time with the other company he runs, Square. We begin today's show by examining what may be an existential threat to Silicon Valley, the home to both of Dorsey's firms, as well as many other tech businesses. The region's weather, lifestyle and opportunities have long been a lure for some of the country's and world's brightest and most creative people, not least those just starting their careers. That lifeblood of the valley, though, may be seeping away. Here to explain what's going on is our columnist, Gina Chunt. Welcome back to the show, Gina.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You, of course, have very recently moved from our DC Bureau to uh, the Bay Area. So... uh you're sort of going in the opposite direction to what you want to talk about, which is that it seems like millennials no longer want to or don't think they're going to stay in the valley as long as as uh, people their age used to in the past. What's going on? Where are you getting this from?
1: Yeah, it's been really interesting to see the uh, demographic and social dynamics here. Um Brunswick Group recently came out with a study that said that about 40% of millennials in the tech industry are planning to leave the area within the year. So, uh that's pretty soon and um there's been other surveys from the San Jose Mercury News and a Silicon Valley Leadership Group which teamed up to show that um There are problems here with the quality of life from the cost of uh, housing and and cost of living, which has just skyrocketed. The median price of a home now in San Francisco is almost a million dollars to the usual problems like traffic jams and a lot of climate related uh, issues such as the wildfires and, and water shortages. And that's all prompting people to think about going elsewhere.
0: Let's drill down into some of those and it strikes me that the the whole idea of of the Bay Area being overpriced has been around for a long time. Yes, obviously at one million an average uh, home, we're looking at a lot of money there. But I remember going there, oh, I'm going to date myself now, 20 years ago, and there were similar issues just before the, the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. Of, you know, We can't afford somewhere to live. We can't afford not necessarily even to buy, but to rent. There was not enough uh, capacity in the city. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the, the, it's a bottleneck city. Obviously, you get up to San Francisco and there are you know, bridges are the only way to get out. So it's a complete mess. But not, neither of these are particularly new. So is the disconnect between uh, the, the, the price and the, the money that people are earning when they come to the city just got much worse?
1: Yeah, I think the um the gap between what you earn and um and what it costs to live here has gotten worse and I think the um the lack of affordable housing has also become an even bigger issue in the last 10 years. The tech industry has created about 700,000 jobs, but there's only been 100,000 units of additional housing built since then. Um so that's created a huge issue for particularly young people, um, some of whom I know commute three hours, um, just one way to get to San Francisco. So I think there's only uh, so much time you can put up with that before you start looking Mm -hmm. elsewhere.
0: And I think there have been other stories. I don't know how much they are just one-offs or apocalypse or whatever, but of people living in cars or sharing uh, one room between three or four of them. All of which sort of you know, backs up that the, the feeling, at least. But like you said, it's, it's not just that. It's also quality of life just beyond housing. I mean, last time I was in San Francisco, which was just done over a year ago, I was surprised at how much worse the homeless situation had got. So just walking on the main street, like Market Street or something, it's, it seems a lot worse. And it seems like even then people were saying that we, the city has tried many things but hasn't really managed to fix it.
1: Yeah, that that is a big issue. And um, voters actually just uh, last November passed a new um, proposition that would increase taxes for large corporations in the city. And that had actually been a big fight between the head of Salesforce, Mark Benioff, and uh, Twitter's Jack Dorsey, um, who was opposed to that proposition. Um, It did end up going through, and we'll see if uh, the homelessness problem uh, gets reduced, but it has definitely been a, a turnoff for people, and and frankly, a, a you know possibly a growing crime issue as well.
0: Mm, absolutely, and you also mentioned you know affordable housing. I mean, ha- the survey you mentioned at the beginning, you you obviously went straight for the the the, the tech um, employees, but I think there's a lot to be said for. Um, those who are in lower paid jobs and um, uh, come from different, different ethnic backgrounds are also possibly more so sit thinking this has just got absolutely ridiculous and it's time to move out.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're a, a teacher or a longtime resident here, um, you're basically being pushed out for uh, more expensive homes. And the San Jose American News uh, survey showed that um, particularly African-Americans, I mean, I think it was in the sort of 70 to 80 percent range, where they're actually looking to also move from the area, and more than 50% of Latinos also said the same. So not only um, are the young people thinking about leaving, but also the, what makes San Francisco a diverse and more vibrant um, mm. population and culture is is also being um, threatened.
0: Mm. And you mentioned, obviously, climate. So you're getting on to the area that, that I find most fascinating. But you know, obviously, last year we had uh, the big uh, campfire, wildfire, just north of the city. I think you know, the, the city was blanketed in smoke for quite some time. So obviously, there was this big reminder, just this survey was being done, that climate is a big issue. They've just come off a multi-year drought. and. They've had pretty good snowfall this season, I think. But nonetheless, the longer term fears of drought, water shortages, even flash floods is getting higher. That adds to the earthquake risk, which we've long associated with the region. So um, that's all building up. Do you you think that, though, that that, that all the climate issues are very much focused on what happened last year? Or do you think that's much more deep set in people's minds now when they think about where to live?
1: Yeah, I think especially the wildfires had such a long and big impact. People are still trying to recover from that. And that has really, I think, made people rethink um, where they want to live long term, given um, some of the climate related risks that you mentioned.
0: Now, of course, the corollary to this is it's all very well saying they they may well leave, but where do they go? And I think if I think about tech areas there are obviously several we can think of around the country you know there's tech centers in um north carolina there's tech centers up um, where some of the car companies are up in michigan and you know even down in the southwest as well but which also have their own issues some of them with water and other uh problems that you've mentioned already but they are at least or they should be rather more affordable but how likely it is do you think that people that that many people will move there and more importantly i suppose that companies will relocate
1: Yeah, I think uh, people are talking about um, how much harder it is to recruit now in the San Francisco area, Um, not just young people, but also chief executives and sort of C-suite level people. So I think that is causing both um, workers and companies to rethink where they want to be. We saw the parent of North Face leave the uh, Bay Area last year. They went to Denver, which is um, one uh, hotspot that's trying to attract some of these companies with uh, tax incentives and other packages. As you mentioned, the sort of Raleigh, uh, Durham, North Carolina area, especially because of its concentration of universities, is also seen as an attractive place uh, Austin right. Texas um, is already seen as sort of a hip spot and uh, a place where some of the um, particularly young people could move to so San Francisco is definitely getting a run for its money and I think that could that competition could increase in the future
0: so what does the city do about this do you think
1: so uh, the San Francisco area, the local politicians do recognize that this is a problem. Uh, The issue is what to do about it. And there's a lot of infighting about that. Even just the affordable housing problem and the homelessness problem has caused big fights between the mayor and the board of supervisors, which is essentially the the city council here. The mayor has tried to do a lot um, in terms of putting new homeless shelters and other um, sort of centers in the area. But that sparked its own protests from the residents who right. live around those proposed places. So it's they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place, because um, anything they suggest to solve it seems to also come with its own problems.
0: Well, Gina, thanks for talking us through that. I'm sure that's going to be a, a great opportunity for other cities in the country, as you mentioned, to try and steal some business and some residents away and some tax revenue. Now, stick around, though, because now I want to talk about a couple of more specific companies and one of its bosses. Let's think about Twitter, which had a pretty good week this week. Chief Executive Jack Dorsey escaped unscathed, largely, from a meeting at the White House with one of the platform's biggest users and complainers, President Donald Trump. And the company had a surprisingly good set of earnings, which led to a 15% jump in its stock price, which it managed to retain as well. That's pretty good. But Dorsey, you reckon Gina should be spending more time elsewhere? What's wrong with with him just being at Twitter?
1: Well, the problem is he's not just at Twitter. He has uh, two chief executive jobs to juggle, both uh, at Twitter and also at the payments company, Square, which he also uh, co-founded back in 2009. And since 2015, he's been running both, which you know, is a tough order for any uh, chief executive. Uh, and Dorsey's obviously more talented than than a lot of them, but it's still been a lot for him. And Twitter especially has had to deal with a lot of problems since then. And it's shown in its stock price. At the same time, Square has actually been surging. And while Twitter did have a, a good earnings for this first quarter, um, Square is much farther ahead and investors are rewarding them for
0: it. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, looking, if you dig down a bit into Twitter's earnings, I mean, half of its net income came from a tax break, I think. And it also said, look, you know, we've been cutting costs, but we also deferred some costs uh, so that uh, the income looks actually better. So it's, it's not as if it's um, necessarily sustainable at this level. And um, but like you said, you know, because he runs two companies, which, of course, we generally think is a very bad idea. I mean, It's bad enough having someone as chairman and CEO of one company, let alone to be CEO of two separate ones. Um, but you're right. I mean, he's had to do a lot of damage control at Twitter, maybe not as much as Mark Zuckerberg, um, his counterpart of Facebook, has had to do. Um, but I agree that he needed to be there. And and payments is a I mean, it's not an easy business to be and There's a lot of competition there. And Square didn't make money last quarter. But. Um, maybe Square just kind of runs itself more more easily. I mean, maybe he should just stick to to Twitter despite what you're saying about going to Square.
1: Yeah, there's um, a question of where he's had more impact and where he's been more effective. And Twitter does seem to have uh, stabilized a bit in terms of you know getting a handle on um, fake users and all these bots and uh, trying to get a sense of you know what the genuine user base is, which actually did, managed to grow uh, in the first yeah. quarter, so that's definitely good news. But Square has uh, really taken off, and just recently with its new cash app, which is basically its its money transfer uh, service, it's had more than 2 million uh, downloads for the fourth straight month in March, which is more than Venmo. So it's really um, figuring out uh, products that customers Want and like I said, investors are really rewarding them from it for it. If you see where Square's share price has gone um, since it went public in 2015, it, uh, the stake that uh, Jack Dorsey owns, which is about 15%, he's earned almost four billion dollars in paper profits just off of that alone, um, which pales, which is much more than um, what he's made with his uh, Square investment or his Twitter investment.
0: Do you think he really should start saying to himself uh, and to his investors, it's time for me to choose one or the other, or at least to spend more time at Square? I mean, like you said, it's done really well, but arguably, I suppose it could do better if he's putting more time into it.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, it's paying off in terms of, again, the new products uh, we're seeing. They also have a new free debit card for small businesses that's become pretty popular, and it seems like that's really where the momentum is and could benefit from... Dorsey spending even more time there to really get the company to its full potential, which seems to be pretty high. Whereas Twitter is, you know, stabilizing and and definitely has been done better in this first quarter, but sort of meandering along. It's it's not clear what the growth is uh, in the future. It seems like it's kind of going to become maybe more of a niche product. The dreams of it becoming the size of Facebook has mm. sort of faded. And so it, it doesn't seem like um, a, an effective use of his time if he is juggling between running two companies.
0: And if if he does decide to spend more time at Square or even you know down the road decides to leave one of them, I mean, let's look at Twitter. I mean, is does it have a deep enough bench of people who can step up and be more of the public face, whether as a second in command or even over time as, as the next chief executive?
1: Yeah, it's had a lot of uh, people coming and going, um, even just before Dorsey returned to the firm in 2015 uh, as the first the interim CEO and then the president. Um, so they do need to uh, build up their bench a bit. But um it, it doesn't seem like Dorsey himself in terms of sort of the star power he has and as the co-founder and, and really understanding the heart of the company has um, managed to really swing it back around to a, a real growth engine. So in, in terms of, you know, what else he could do there, it's a bit questionable.
0: Well, great, Gina. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for talking us through those two really fascinating topics. I'm sure we'll have you back on to go through yet more on both of those in the future. Thanks again.
1: Thanks for
2: having me. I'm Una Galani in Mumbai, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Clara Ferreira Marquez in Singapore. Indonesians have re-elected President Joko Widodo, also known as Jokowi. The former small town mayor will now be at the helm of the world's most populous Muslim majority country, A darling of foreign investors, for a second term. In his first five years, though, he didn't quite live up to expectations. There were high hopes for reform, but growth in the $1 trillion economy remains stuck at 5%, too slow for a young emerging nation. Clara, Jokowi won with a smaller than expected margin. What can we now expect from him in terms of policies? To put it in
3: context, Jokowi is or was in 2014 when he was first elected a real outsider in Indonesian politics. It's hard to overestimate how people hyped it up. Um, He was really the the outside the military and economic elite that has ruled Indonesia uh, for previous decades. Uh, He was a real breath of fresh air and a lot of what he promised to do was to make Indonesia an easier place to invest. Now some of that has happened. Um, He has cut red tape, he has invested very heavily in infrastructure, but there remains a lot to do. I mean, and it's not entirely clear from the results, I mean, he does, um, he will have a stronger backing in parliament, which is not what he had when he was last elected. When he last came in, he had to really build up that coalition, that wave of support uh, to allow him to put through um, often painful reforms. He does have that this time. So we know that that will be the case. We also, unfortunately, know that there has been a rise in populism, which may make some of the more complex reforms and perhaps moving away from some of the nationalist instincts that plague Indonesia from time to time. That may be a little bit harder.
2: So, I mean, in terms of specific policies that are coming next, what should we look for?
3: There are a couple of things. I mean, the Indonesia has been pretty conservative from a budget perspective and will continue to be. We don't yet know the makeup of the cabinet. I mean, the results aren't even yet official. We have to wait uh, a little bit for those. But the cabinet, if it's anything like it is at the moment, we expect it to be, remain very conservative, which means that he will attack things like subsidies, which are absolutely budget sapping in Indonesia. So we'll see more of that. Um, and mm. that's all good for foreign investors. We'll also see more cutting of red tape, probably more investment in infrastructure. that has been a lot, a lot more is needed, and probably with more private sector participation than we've seen to date. Now, the question is how much further he can go beyond that.
2: Will he be more daring, given um, Indonesia has a two-term limit?
3: Well, that's the hope. And certainly the reformers really hope that he can tackle um, I mean, the one really big issue that everyone will mention is labor in Indonesia. Now, Indonesia is a country of 260 million people, a very young country that needs, dramatically needs to create employment, you know, a lot like India, which you, you look at much more closely. It is a country that needs to create a lot of jobs. And for that, they need a manufacturing sector. They need a thriving oil and gas sector. They need all of these industries that really haven't thrived to the extent that is necessary. And one thing they need to do is tackle labor. Uh, It's a very rigid system. If you fire somebody, you have to pay an enormous amount of severance, which, you know, by comparison with anyone in the region and beyond, which has made it very difficult for for hiring. Um, So there is some hope that perhaps a second term with a stronger parliamentary backing may make that necessary. Now, the one thing that makes me hesitate is the rise of Islam in the recent election, and the victory in some parts of Indonesia for very conservative populist Um, agenda, which I think will, I mean, we've already seen a little bit of evidence of that in his first term. My concern would be that we would see that increasing.
2: So I'm actually glad you brought that up. I mean, it sounds like that this is an opportunity for Jokowi to really be bold and and form his legacy and really like go out with a bang. But I mean, he has, um, as you sort of alluded to, he has picked a hardline Muslim cleric as his running mate. That's who he ran alongside. Um, So what should we make uh, of that against concerns about rising religious conservatism, uh, as well as the backdrop of populism?
3: I mean, there's reason for, so there's two separate, they, they aren't necessarily always related. So you've the sort of populist, nativist, nationalist instincts, and then the conservative Islam. In, in Indonesia traditionally has a very moderate and um, accepting form of Islam, Islam Nusantara. The more um, conservative elements which we see with the Prabowo Subianto and the parties that have supported him have done very well in, um, in more conservative parts of Indonesia, including in the very region that Jokowi's um, vice president comes from. So that that is worrying. Um, also, we've seen it, for example, in the move later um, he reversed it, but the move to pardon the Bali bomber. So things like that are a little bit um, a little bit concerning for for what may be to come. Given that in this election, Islam really has been an issue that, in a way, that it wasn't in 2014.
2: That all sounds really interesting and certainly there's a lot to watch. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Clara.
0: Great. Thanks, Una, and thanks, Clara. And thanks also to Gina Chon for coming on the show to talk about all things Silicon Valley. We extend our gratitude also, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our other podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about both of our shows. Join us again next week for another edition.